Hey there, and welcome back to the This Is Beauty podcast, where the search for real beauty begins with inspiring, thought-provoking, and often fascinating journeys deep into the heart of beauty itself. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Nina Kentz. Today, I have with me Laura Ann. Laura is a full-time student at the University of Nebraska in Omaha, where she studies history, anthropology, and religion. Beyond the fact that Laura is an exceptionally articulate and insightful person, she also belongs to a somewhat unique demographic. Zillennials are a transitional group, vanguard of an emerging age that is turning out to be one of the most interesting generations to come along in the past 70 years. Their perspectives on beauty alone appear to be both fundamentally and radically different from those of the generations that preceded them. And the path that this new generation is carving for themselves is likely to reshape both our culture and our society in ways that we have yet to fully imagine, perhaps for the much better, if only they are given the chance to get there, a certainty of which, as you'll soon hear, Many of them are entirely and justifiably in doubt. At any rate, I don't mean to jump up on the soapbox here, but I found this conversation with Laura to be surprisingly eye-opening and even a little alarming at some points. We cover everything from attitudes around body positivity and gender neutrality to online dating and politics to reverse sexism to authenticity in social media to the glamorization of mental illness by the media the rise of the non-binary movement, and we even touch on beauty from both an anthropological and historical perspective. All of this from the perspective of someone who lives it every day, but who has also clearly given it a lot of thought. It's not often that you meet someone this young who can both be in the picture, so to speak, and then who can step out of the frame and look at what they're living in such an objective fashion. And I think that is a real advantage when you're talking to someone who is much younger, especially if you're trying to understand where they're coming from and where they think other people in their generation are coming from. It really wasn't my intention to get into a conversation about beauty, culture, and generation so early on in the podcast, especially given that we already have so much ground to cover. But Laura, like many people her age, is holding down a full-time job while attending school, and she just doesn't have the time for much of anything else. So I decided to grab this opportunity while we could. I don't know when we'll have an opportunity like this again in the near future, at least not one this candid from someone so young. So without much further ado, I bring you Laura Ann. Thank you so much for joining us. I know how busy you are right now. You are going to school and you're working full time as well. I know this has been a bit of a pinch, but thank you <laughs> yes, for doing thank it. Thank you for having me. No, it's very fun. I think this will be definitely interesting. It's the first time. I'm ready for anything new and it's a good distraction. <laughs> yeah, from knowing that you have all these assignments. <laughs> from knowing doing. that I have everything else going on. I wanted to just start out the conversation in a more of general direction. I wanted to talk to you about something that I recently read online. It was a Viacom marketing report or study, and it said that Gen Z consumers tend to be hyper-conscious of the way they look. Paradoxically, they also had placed this emphasis on being yourself. They said in this particular study that it was a phrase that best fit their definition of beauty. And as somebody who is a front-end Gen Z, or you're right on the cusp between Gen Z and a millennial, I wanted to ask you what you make of that. Uh, yeah, I think that's actually very interesting and it does ring very true from everything I've seen. And so we have this concept, at least in my generation, my age, of something that we call zillennials, but it's this kind of generational gap, this little bridge between people who were born in 95 to 98 that are on either the older side of being Gen Z or the younger side of being a millennial. And it's this kind of gap that's influenced by who you grew up around and how old your siblings or friends were when you were growing up. So I consider myself a little bit more on the millennial side because I am the youngest in my family. Obviously, my parents are older. My brothers are, one of them's in their 30s, one of them's about to turn 30s. So they're both very much millennials. 
And so we have this kind of generational bridge that we get to be on both sides. And I have seen this in Gen Z for sure. And I've seen this in younger millennials as well, that there is this hyper focus on your looks and how you present yourself. But at the same time, there's this be yourself movement, this body positivity movement, this concept that what you look like is not all that you are. And so I think that's very interesting, especially watching everything from like the 2000s until today, because you see how those have grown up. In the 2000s, in the early 2000s, it was very much about the way that you look. Like, let's think about the concept of like low rise jeans for a second. Well, that sounds silly, but if you think about the early 2000s and you think about early 2000s fashion and how people presented themselves, low rise jeans was a really big fashion concept. In the early 2000s and Y2K fashion was the reigning kind of style at that time. And it really emphasized being incredibly thin, just like Britney Spears, Halle Berry, anyone like that was just so thin. And it's hard not to look good in clothes when you're that skinny, right? Well, if you're going to wear low rise jeans, you need a flat stomach, <laughs> if right? If you're going to wear low rise jeans, there's nothing there. And so we have this really interesting concept now of we are body positive. So now it's this thing where you have to be fashion forward but you don't have to be the same body type. So we still have low rise jeans now. They're making a comeback. Y2K fashion has made a comeback, but it has less of an emphasis on being incredibly skinny and more of an emphasis on the clothes themselves and the way that you put yourself forward. So it's less a physical form and more of a presentation. That's interesting because that echoes what I have read. The emphasis is not so much on beauty these days, with people in your generation. It's more about being able to express oneself authentically and in a variety of different ways or modes to have many different personas with a fluidity. That. Yes, I believe that's absolutely true. I believe that. But it is also, there is also a pressure in order to express yourself in a unique and fluid way. It's not like there's be yourself. And if yourself is sweats in a high bun, you're great. It's be yourself, but be presentable and be forward in your fashions and your style choices and the way that you present yourself. I liked when they said it's a paradoxical concept because it is a be yourself, but only in the way that it is acceptable to be yourself. Right. And even though that framework is larger or so-called inclusive, that also implies that there are boundaries somewhere. The fantastic thing about people in your generation is being so body accepting, self-accepting, open, but there's also the pernicious behavior of the marketing and advertising industry. They can cage people in that dynamic. They that absolutely have. And so the best example that I have of that is we have had in very recent years, a body positive movement towards plus size women, mm -hmm. which is great. It's amazing. It is a beautiful concept. There is nothing wrong with it. But it has come to almost an extreme where there is body positive content for women who I would say are size so 12 and up. They're more plus size, as the media would call them. And then there's body positive things for women who I think are probably a size four and down. But these women who make up almost the majority of the populace, these very average bodied women are left out of those concepts. Women who are a size six through 12 are just, it's almost you're like, oh, well, if you're those sizes, you can just kind of deal with it. It's this inclusivity that includes exclusivity. <laughs> Talk about a paradox. Exactly. exactly. It's almost a focus on exceptionalism in inverse kind of way. It very much is. And I think society has always had this hyper-focused on the things that are exceptions. Hyper-focused on things that are outside of the norm, whether that be good or bad. And we still do it today and we're doing it more and more with image. Injury, I think there's a lot of discussion about how people in the Gen Z, particularly Gen Z generation, but as well as millennials are focused on gender neutrality and some of the other things that we've just talked about. And also the fluidity of being able to switch personas or identities and move between different groups to be included in any kind of group or any kind of identification one wants to be. But I also wonder whether there is not some pressure 
pressure that people your age also feel to have multiple personas, where it's not just so much optional, but it becomes, wow, if you don't have that kind of fluidity, then where are you? Well, it's a very interesting thing. I had this conversation the other day with my best friend because we were talking about we've known each other for almost 20 years, which I am coming up on 25. So knowing someone for that long is a very large piece of my life. And we were talking about change and change in personalities and change in personalities and how you present yourself to the world and accepting your own actual personality. And we were talking about that because we have recognized in the past few years, especially that we have different personalities with different groups of people. I don't even think that's a generational thing. I think that's a reflection of human nature. You tend to project yourself in a way that you think people will accept you. And so for instance, in middle school, for me, I projected myself as not a very nice person because I felt that if I was nice, I was boring, or people were going to reject me, or they weren't going to like me. When in actuality, and not to toot my own horn, but I am a very nice person. And that doesn't necessarily mean I'm the warmest person, or I'm the most generous, it just means that I am quite a nice individual. And for years, I pretended that I wasn't. And now my friends who have known me for years and years see me being very nice, for lack of a better term, and they're a little confused. It's almost like that isn't you and that isn't your personality and you've changed a lot. And in reality, we haven't changed that much. You don't really change that much as a person. I think you just become truer and truer to yourself as you get older and you realize that there isn't a whole lot of point in hiding these aspects of your personality. And so I have a phrase that I like to say that I say to my best friend all the time, which is we are the mask and we are the wearer. So even though we have these different personalities with different people or different groups, I have a different work personality and a different home personality and a different social personality. But none of these is false. All of these are aspects of who I am as a person, they just come out differently with different people. And that is a concept that I believe that you learn as you get older. And so when you look at Gen Z and you look at these multiple switching personalities and you look at, is there a pressure to switch personalities? There is a pressure to switch personalities, but I think that's always been the case. There's a pressure to switch personalities with who you're with and to be accepted. And when you are young, that's a lot more prominent. I think we can see it a lot more with Gen Z because they are so prominent online. We have so many more ways to connect now and connect worldwide too, that we really see this reflection of switching personalities with your social media personality is different from your home personality, is different from your personality with your long-term friends, your short-term friends, your coworkers. But I think it's really just a product of the fact that we can see it more and that they are so young. So they haven't really had this self-reflective time to go back and say, oh, I encompass all of this. I am the mask and I am the wearer. I have all of these different personalities and none of them is alive. They are all to some extent true. Hmm. It's interesting. I want to talk to you about younger people's views of beauty because I do think that they have changed radically from my generation, your parents' generation, even from early millennials. So when you think of the word beauty or consider what is beautiful, what ideas and things or experiences come to mind? Well, I will say that firstly, beauty is such an individualized concept. It is a societal concept for sure. Society has a concept of what beauty is, and that is usually a very visual concept. But I will think that individually, we also have a, our own concept of what beauty is. And so I can't speak really for the whole generation. Of course. But I will say that when I think of beauty, very basically, when somebody says beauty, it's like a word association game. What pops into my head is visual and aesthetic beauty. So it's beautiful people or beautiful places or beautiful things. So it's Kira Knightley or the Cliffs of more or makeup, things that are very visually driven. And then when you actually think about it more, it becomes a lot more philosophical. It becomes what's inside things or concepts or thoughts, theories, and philosophies. So it's such an all-encompassing word. And honestly, it's such a vague, undefinable concept within itself. I know we have a definition for it, but at the same time, I think it encompasses such a large array of things that it is almost undefinable. I think so too, because everybody, like you said, has a different experience of beauty. And I like to look at beauty as an experience because even if it's a visual experience, even if you define it as something visual, it's still an experience that you are having. Right. Yeah, of course. And I think when you dive deeper into it as a almost a philosophical concept, you think about the things that you find beautiful are very different from the things that other people find beautiful. For instance, 
professions find different things beautiful. So a scientist who studies flora probably finds flowers a lot more beautiful than the average person. And not just from a visual perspective, but from a microbial scientific perspective. He looks at that flower and sees all of the different things about it because he studies flora and finds beauty in that scientific aspect. Whereas we look at that flower and see a wisteria or a rose <laughs> or something like that. And we're like, oh, roses are pretty. They are beautiful. I think rose is a very classic symbol of beauty. But if you are somebody who studies flora and fauna and you look at a rose, you probably see it in a very different way, but that does not mean that you don't see it as beautiful. It just means that you see that beauty a slightly different way, maybe a step to the left of everybody else. That's just your interpretation of it or your model of it. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Yes. You know, very, very different for very different individuals. How has your idea or concept of beauty influenced or shaped your worldview when you think of it? Is it a filter for you for certain experiences? I will say for certain experiences, beauty is definitely a filter. But again, that filter of beauty also changes based on your experience. I will say as a person, I have a pretty healthy amount of vanity. I am vain in certain aspects and I will not deny that in any way, shape or form. The dating experience has changed a lot in recent years, especially for millennials and Gen Z. And it's a lot more about online dating, especially in the wake of COVID-19. And also for people who are young professionals, people such as myself who do work full-time or in school full-time. You're not really going out because of the pandemic. So there's a lot of things that kind of change you to online dating. And the way that I filter out people on online dating is a lot of times visual. That's what I mean when I say I have a healthy amount of vanity. The first thing I look at is the way that somebody looks and the way that they present themselves. And I don't even have to read people's bio nine times out of 10 because I'm swiping left on the way that somebody looks. I don't think that's so unusual. I'll be honest with you. I think a lot of people will take exception to that description. But if people are being truly honest with themselves and one another, I think that we would say that we all do that. You may have a prejudice to it or not, or you may have a bias or may even disregard it, but it is human nature. Well, it is human nature. And see, I see a lot of things on social media that make me feel very validated about this because I'll see other women talk about online dating. And there's this concept in online dating right now for women, especially that there are men who are like certain types of men on dating apps. And I'm using men as an example, sorry, but there is a certain type of men and we call them like fish picks and it's men who are holding fish that they have caught in their profile images. What? I, yes, so it's a very, it's a very, it's a very prominent thing. When you are swiping through dating profiles, five out of 10 men will be holding a fish in their picture. I don't know why. I have had oh, I a, don't I don't know why. I have had a male friend tell me that <laughs> because it is one of the only like full body pictures of themselves that they have because men don't take as many pictures. I think that's a lie. I don't know why men do this, but fish pics. And there is a certain connotation that comes with a profile that starts with a man holding a fish, which is not, it's usually a negative connotation. Right. There might be some women who see a man holding a fish and are like, that's for me. <laughs> Swipe right. <laughs> but I think overall, it is a very negative connotation where you see a dude holding a fish in his dating profile picture and it's the first picture around there and you're like, ah, I'm okay, thanks. And you swipe left. So aesthetically, if you're talking about that through a filter of beauty, these images hold a lot of power, more power than that man could be so good looking. That man could be an Adonis. But if he's holding a fish in his first dating profile picture, I am probably going to swipe left because that has a certain connotation to it. And I think that's a different kind of filter that we put over things. And we, we talk about self-beauty too, if I'm talking about continuing on this same vein of Vanity. <laughs> we talk about self-beauty. I also look at, I also criticize the way that I look. So in the mirror, you look at yourself and you see things that you consider imperfections, such as blemishes. So I am really regimented about skincare. Like I don't wear a lot of makeup, but I do a lot of skincare. I try to take very, very good care of my skin. And that is something that I consider healthy vanity because your skin does need care. Your body needs care. That's an okay, that's an okay amount of vanity, but it can also get 
it a little self-deprecating. When you look at yourself and you wake up one day with a pimple and you think for even a moment, even a split second, oh my God, I hate my face or I hate my skin or I hate my body for doing that to me. And I think as Gen Z, as the younger generation, we do put a lot of emphasis on physical imperfection. I think a lot of people are dealing with that right now. There's this concept, fake Instagram or Finsta. I don't know if you know about it, but it's almost- oh, have one. Okay. <laughs> Where women and men are showing the non-optimal vision or portrait of themselves. And I see a lot of emphasis also on women being authentic and real and just showing their zits or showing their unphotoshopped yeah, pictures. So there was this trend going around on, I believe it was TikTok a couple of months ago that was women showing themselves with a filter or with makeup on. And then they would switch to showing themselves without makeup on and they would actually zoom in on the most texturized area of their face. And what that means is the area of their face that they felt that they had the most flaws, whether that's pimples or bumps or scars or whatever. And that was actually one of those really great things to come out of this hyper focus on looks because it makes you feel a lot better about the fact that social media is a presentation. And there are a lot of women and men who are fighting against this concept of everybody on social media is perfect because social media is a different way to present yourself to the world. I think that's especially true now as employers ask for your social media handles or as potential partners look through your social media or even partners' parents, even your own parents, even your own family. And you want to present to them this very clean, respectable, exciting front or persona. So social media is a presentation. I think Finsta is the kind of flip side of that where you feel like you get to be a little bit more yourself. You get to post the things that you want and say the things that you want and just post funny pictures for your friends that you want to share rather than trying to be aesthetically pleasing to the world. I just read on these marketing studies that there's a real strong sense among young women and men because beauty evidently as defined by younger people now is a gender neutral concept. It's not about women necessarily. Yeah, yeah. I think I have a tendency to forget men when I'm talking about beauty. But for Gen Z, it is very much a gender neutral thing. We are really switching the focus to being about everyone, very inclusive to all genders. And I think that's really important. There are even male models who are behind beauty brands now or who are wearing makeup, some younger men who are... Yeah, actually, and I think that's amazing. Look I at Harry Styles. That. Look at Harry Styles. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he can really work a room, huh? What do you think about him wearing boas, things like that. Oh, I think it's amazing. First of all, I've always liked pretty men. Yeah. I, I like very pretty people and pretty things. So for me, it's, you know what? You rock that feather boa or that eyeshadow or that makeup, or you look great in that foundation because at the end of the day, it's a form of expression. And I don't think forms of expression should have any kind of gender lock on them. I think that's stupid. Honestly, in all other things with the lack of better words, it's dumb to to gender lock something like that because at the end of the day they really are their forms of expressions heels dresses makeups boas I really don't care as long as you feel good in your own skin and you feel good in your own body and you're really truly expressing yourself so there's a focus or an emphasis on creativity here about being creative I think so I think there's a focus on creativity but there's also a focus on like we were talking about earlier self-expression and if it's acceptable for a woman to wear sweatpants it's should be acceptable for a man to wear a skirt. End of story. Fair enough. It's a trade-off. When we got the ability to wear pants, men should have gotten the ability to wear skirts. Yeah. We have this concept of hyper-masculinity or machoism in our society and in many societies. And um, it's very harmful to men, honestly. We tell men a lot that men don't cry. Right. You know, men aren't allowed to cry. Men don't cry. You really got to toughen yourself up. That's a ridiculous concept because the inability to cry is a physical harmful. It's physically and emotionally harmful. The inability to release yourself from these emotions. And we talk all the time as women about being afraid of men and their anger, but that is because they don't have another outlet. It's much more acceptable for men to be angry than it is for men to be sad. And I think that's ridiculous. If we're going to need to be open about expanding the boundaries and concepts of what beauty is for women, it only seems fair to extend that to men, that men are also boxed in 
in on these archaic Absolutely. kind of labels and, and it's, conventions. It's very that harmful. They didn't define. Um, what's harmful when we talk about beauty and we talk about the impacts that and the social implications that beauty has, we can talk about eating disorders and the fact that a lot of women are affected by eating disorders. They don't eat a lot so that they can become skinnier. They overeat because of emotion or eating disorders are very serious, but we don't talk about the fact that men have a lot of eating disorders. So if you see men who are really fitness-based, there's a crazy statistic out there, and I can't remember it off the top of my head. Please fact check me. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. No problem. There is a crazy amount of men with fitness-based lifestyles that have eating disorders. And we talk about this concept. Yeah, we have this concept of in the younger generation, we call them gym bros. What do you call them? Gym bros. I was like, men who are in the gym all the time. Okay. They're constantly working out or they're constantly trying to get in better shape, or they're like showing off their own bodies and something. But eight times out of 10, those men have eating disorders and they don't even realize it because we switch that focus. We don't tell men that they can have eating disorders. or We don't tell men that they can be sexually harassed. We don't tell men that it's okay to cry. And so we have those concepts for women that we have really been emphasizing for women for at least a decade that, hey, it's okay to cry. Hey, you don't have to put up with Sexual harassment. Right. And we don't do the same for men. And I think that is very harmful, especially to our younger generation of men. Yeah. I think women can have expectations of men that they would not want to extend to themselves. Oh, absolutely. I think we have a lot of internalized misogyny where we even that includes towards men. I think we have this concept of men can't be more emotional than their partner. I even have this concept. They can't be less successful than their partner. Right, exactly. You can't tell me that idea has been obliterated. That has not been obliterated at all. Even today, we have that concept of like sugar daddies. That's still a thing. Really? Oh, yeah. Where men are, they have to be much more successful with their partners. Men have to be the breadwinner, the ultimate supporter of their families. And certainly you can choose that lifestyle. There's nothing wrong with choosing that lifestyle. I want to get that out of the way real quick. There's nothing wrong with having a stay-at-home parent or choosing that lifestyle where one partner supports the other. If you have both chosen it, if you have had that conversation, that really open expectation conversation, that I will support you and you can stay home or I am okay paying majority of the bills and it's fine for you to pay less. But that also goes both ways. It doesn't have to be men to women. It can be women to men. And you don't have to be financially equivalent in a partnership. And I think we do still have that concept very much that your male partner has to be much more successful than you do. And in this day and age of gender neutrality, but also this rise that we see in non-binary people or people of different genders, what does it even mean to have a genderized concept of equality. It's irrelevant, almost. Well, it's fascinating, at least statistically, your generation is much more likely to be accepting of just gender neutrality. At least I read somewhere that at least 20% of people between Gen Z and millennials are defining themselves as gender neutral, which means that they don't have a particular sexual identity. Yeah, I honestly think that's really great. It is, it's a breakaway from you don't have to be a man or a woman. You don't have to define yourself either way. And I think the underlying concept has always existed, but we haven't really had a label for it. If you think about men who dressed as women or women who dressed as men, we've had different, very unflattering words for these people. And I think now it's really more about nonconformity or not placing yourself in the box that you were born into. It's really a concept where it's different for every individual. So it's hard to describe. But at the same time, it's the same idea that we're trying to do with our societal filters. We're trying to get rid of gender. What do you think's behind that? I think it's always been desired. You can look at different social movements throughout history, and I think it's really this very human desire to not be constrained. And I think within the last few centuries, we have really tightened the reins on what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. 
we've really dug in as a society and as humanity, as human beings, we really dug into this idea of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And we've put so many things in boxes, clothes, expressions, emotions, jobs, finances. We've put so many things in. If you are a man, you do X, Y, Z. And if you are a woman, you do T, U, V. So I think it's this very human concept of I no longer want to be in a box. Do you think that's enabled or fomented by digital technology, social media? Why do you think now? I think it's connectivity. You think it's connectivity? I think it's the ability to connect with people worldwide or even statewide. Even in the 1980s, if you wanted to be friends with somebody in a different state, you had to be a pen pal, right? Right. And you were slowly going letters back and forth. You had to use the phone. Or you had to use your landline. Your wall corded landline, right? And even then, you were only connecting to one person. You didn't have this concept of the World Wide Web, which allows you to connect with thousands of people all over the world, all over your country, who all have similar ideas to you. And you can really learn that there are thousands or hundreds of thousands of people who have the same need or want as you. And so I think that is part of the reason. And that's part of the reason we have a lot of concepts today that we didn't used to have. Do you think some of these changes that are happening, these changes in attitudes, these social and cultural perspectives have anything to do with a reaction to what you've seen your parents go through? I'm sure it is because, at least for me, because I'm a bit older, my parents were born in the 60s yeah, and their parents were born in the 30s. And we had this concept in the United States, at least. This is probably not a worldwide concept. There are very few universal concepts in the world. And so I'm looking at this from a very American perspective. But in the 30s and 40s and 50s, really through until almost the 90s, we had this push towards the nuclear family. You have a mother and a father and kids, and they all fall in these very specific categories. And you have this nuclear American unit, and you have a very expected way of going through life. You are born and you grow up with two parents and you go to school and then you get a higher education and then you marry. And if you're a woman, you stay home with your children. And if you are a man, you go to work and you restart the cycle all over again. And so I think- How boring. It's terrible. (laughs) It sounds horrendous. It does when you describe it, doesn't it? That is a certain type of purgatory. It does. It does. That sounds so bad. It's fine if you hear that and you hear that concept and you go, wow, that's really what I want for myself. There's nothing wrong with it. My mother is a stay-at-home mother. She does so much more than just be a mother, but she's also one of my best friends. And that wouldn't have been a thing if she had not been a stay-at-home mother. And so there's nothing wrong with stay-at-home parenting, and there's nothing wrong with the nuclear family, but there is something wrong with the idea that anybody who is outside of that is is incorrect, or is not fitting the standard, or is failing in some way. And so we really had that push towards that family and our parents' generation. And I think that's what kind of cemented those boxes, those gender ideals, and those kind of, this is what you do if you are this. And so I think now that we're younger and we are connecting to more people, we're really pushing against that. Maybe we're pushing in the opposite direction, even, where we see that and we go, if you're that, you're a failure. Are most of your friends single still? For me, it's a lot of a mix. One of my best friends is getting married in April, and I'm actually in her wedding. Oh, here you go. (laughs) Yes, it's getting to be that time. I'm 25. My biological clock is dead. But I also have a lot of friends who are the same age as me who are single and are nowhere near ready to get married or don't have a committed partner. And I have friends who are in between that who have a committed partner but don't necessarily want to be married right now. And I think I looked at a statistic a while ago that was talking about the average age that American women get married. And it's now about 28. When oh, really? I, it's yeah. That still, it's, it's that young, it's actually. It's that young, but it is also much older than it used to be. So yeah. even 10 years ago, it was about 25. And this is also impacted by where you live regionally. So in the Midwest, I see parents all the time parents, people who have children that are around my age and have children who are three, four or five. 
And it shocks me. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? It is kind of mind-blowing. For instance, I was at this pumpkin patch in October, and I was sitting on the hayride, and there was a young couple sitting across from me, and they couldn't have been any older than 32. And they have an 8-year-old and a 10-year-old. And I was sitting there thinking, these people are not even 10 years older than I am. And they have a child who is a decade old. And it was astounding to me. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they've succeeded and I failed because they were on track to have a 10-year-old by the time that they were 22. And it doesn't mean that they failed and I succeeded because I have successfully avoided the nuclear family. Also, as you mentioned, it's part and parcel of where you are in this country, New York or L.A. I think you would find that to be more the exception at that age, or it wouldn't be so obvious. Right, exactly. So when you're on, I tend to think of, at least America, in terms of coast and then the inside. Mm -hmm. So I think about the East Coast, the West Coast, and the Gulf Coast even, because those are the places that generate more ideas. They always have been because of just the worldwide access that they have. And then the interior kind of grows more slowly. So you have this more almost accepted concept of not settling down until you're quite a bit older on these coasts. And then the more interior you get in the United States, we're located in Nebraska. It is the most landlocked state in the United States. Is it? It is. It is quadruple landlocked, which is a frightening statistic, actually. (laughs) I don't Um, like to think about it. Which means it's surrounded on all sides by states that are triple landlocked, which are surrounded by states that are double landlocked. Is that true? It is true. It is the most landlocked state in the United States. This is a fact. This is a fact. Oh, okay. This is a fact. So when you really get to the center of the United States, which is where we are, which is Nebraska, you get this slower pouring of ideas and people still get married younger because you don't have those ideas coming in of it's okay not to get married until you're in your late 20s and your early 30s and your late 30s so you don't really have that concept yeah yeah you're a student of history and anthropology and what do you have your minoring my cognitive field is in religion cognitive field you have been a student of anthropology for a while, and this is your area of interest. Do you have any concept or understanding of beauty from an anthropological perspective? Where does that fit in? Anthropology is at its base, the study of humanity, and it is the study of people. And so we start from a very evolutionary point. We start from the evolution of primates into human beings or what we call homo sapiens sapiens, which is the type of human being that we are. And it's very interesting because when you're studying evolution, you don't really talk about the concept of physical or aesthetic beauty. You don't talk about did Neanderthals find each other attractive. That's not really a concept that you talk about. You talk about dentition or bipedalism or occipital lobes. You don't really go, oh, were they aesthetically pleasing? Was it beautiful to have hair all over your body or was it considered odd? And you don't really have that concept until you get to budding cultures, until you get to the birthplace of what we consider modern humanity, which is the birth of cultures and cities. And it's really interesting because it's almost like beauty was born at the same time that modern humanity was born, at the same time that all of these cultures came into existence. But I don't know if that's necessarily true, and it it is almost impossible to tell. You do have early depictions of art In anthropology, you have cave paintings or you have early burials. And we actually have found that Neanderthals had funerals and they represented funerals and they buried their people with fauna and flora. And you say, well, is that a concept of beauty? Do we bury people with flowers today because we find flowers beautiful and we want to send them off in a beautiful way? Why do we do that? Do we do it for the aestheticism of it, the beauty of it? And it's hard to say when that concept of beauty really came into being because there's so little information about something that's that far back. There's so little information about something that's 10,000 years ago. And I think the beauty is something that is 10,000 years in the making. And it changes over time, just like we change over time, just like the human race has changed over time. 
And it's really difficult to say in early Mesopotamia, when they started trading shells, the did they find them more valuable because they were beautiful? Or did they merely find them valuable because they were rare? Or is something rare beautiful in itself? So this concept, anthropologically speaking, is just as vague as it is now. Now, <laughs> now if it's anything, it's just been defined conventionally for yes. purposes of selling and yeah, t- turning Absolutely. things into a profit. phrase of, we use it all the time, is it conventionally attractive? And we all have an idea of what conventionally attractive it is. But it's really interesting because if you ask somebody else, their idea of conventionally attractive is probably something very different from your idea of conventionally attractive. But now we have this more solid definition of beauty. And again, it's a universal concept that has been in our society. It's anglicized. Is the word beauty, does that exist everywhere? You're a student of Latin and Greek. What... I tell me a little bit about that. (laughs) So it's really interesting because if you think about early societies and you think about Latin and Greek, is there a word? There is a concept, but the word does not mean the same thing that our word does. And that's because in ancient Greece or ancient Rome, they are obviously not the same societies that we have today. So you understand that They had to have had a concept of beauty because in Greek mythology and in Roman mythology, they have a goddess of beauty. That's true. Yeah. So you have to know, and she was purportedly very beautiful. So you have to know Mm -hmm. by Western standards, of course, but you have to know that if they had this concept of there is a goddess who represents beauty, they would have had to have a concept of beauty and a concept of who they thought was attractive. Where if you think about the mythologies and the stories that come out of these early Western societies, you think about Helen of Troy, and she had the face that launched a thousand ships, you know, you really have to think about the fact that she was considered incredibly beautiful. Cleopatra was considered incredibly beautiful. But you also have to consider the flip side of the stories of these women and why they were considered beautiful. You have busts, existing statues of Helen of Troy and Cleopatra, and we look at them today and we go, I don't think she's very attractive. She was the downfall of Julius Caesar, or her face launched a thousand ships. I don't think so. (laughs) Yeah. But you have to understand that their concept of beauty was very different from our own, and that is a product of they didn't see worldwide like we do. And also just their society valued different things. So was Cleopatra beautiful because of her face? Or was she beautiful because she was incredibly breathtakingly intelligent? Right. Or because she had, yes. Or she because had she mag- had power. Right. She was magnetic. Uh, yeah. I have read that she had incredible charisma. Absolutely. And you have to think about the fact that Cleopatra was Greek, not Egyptian. So she was the last Ptolemaic ruler in Egypt, in Alexandria, which means that she came from Greece. She's actually Cleopatra VII. She's not the first Cleopatra. But is she, she a is, descendant of Alexander the Great? She is not. He no. died, okay. and his general Ptolemy took over Alexandria. Oh, okay. Okay. So she is the last of the Ptolemaic rulers of Egypt. But what's really important about Cleopatra is that she made an effort to learn the Egyptian language and dress like an Egyptian and learn Egyptian customs and really immerse herself in the culture and the language of the people that she ruled. And I think that's a big part of the reason that they considered her beautiful is because she really made that effort to rule her as one people of them. fairly as one of them as someone who was them. Egyptian and understand them. And she made the same effort in her relations with Rome and her relations with Julius Caesar and her relations with Mark Antony. And even her political steps were taken very seriously. She was actually married to her brother and the political steps that she took are that's something today that we even study in military history when we look at great military or political movements. So It's a strategy. Yes. And she was so much more than her face. And so when we consider that Cleopatra was supposed to be this beautiful woman, and then we look at her statue and she has this great Greek nose. It's very big and broad and it takes up a lot of her face. And she's got these very deep set, double-lidded eyes. And she's not what we consider today conventionally attractive. But you have to consider that she was more than her aesthetics. Right. So, so much more. So much more. And so when we talk about the concept of beauty, even from a historical perspective, even from stories, and 
you know, Cleopatra was someone who existed. She is a historical figure. But even when we look about the stories that we have created about her, you have to consider that, yes, Cleopatra was perhaps conventionally attractive by those standards, by Roman standards, by Greek standards in that time. But was she also attractive because of who she was and the magnetism and the power that she had? Do you feel like women, young women today, are still held to a conventional standards of beauty? Do you still feel, for all the talk of being oneself, being authentic, being okay with one's flaws, do you still feel that there is a pressure to be Oh, absolutely. Objectively beautiful. I don't think that concept is ever going to go away. I do believe that the concept has always existed. Again, when you look at stories and even stories and mythologies from other cultures, everyone has this concept of either goddess of beauty or something that pertains to beauty. And I think today we still do that. We still look at aestheticism and there is a big problem with glorifying or beautifying things that should not be beautified. And I talked about this the other day with a friend that we beautify things perhaps should not be beautified. And what I mean by that is like our media representation of mental illness right now. We have one, which first of all is great. We have media that represents mental illness, TV shows and movies and books that represent mental illness. But I think we glorify them. We paint them in these very aesthetic ways and we make them very beautiful. And I think that's very harmful because we have people, young women, young men who really copy those things that they see on media and television and those things that they find aesthetically pleasing that are harmful. What do you mean about making them appealing or beautiful? I do understand that from the perspective of a poet because of the push and pull between dark and light and things that are often sad or considered beautiful. Is this what we're talking about? Yeah. So we're talking about, I'll put it in media and in TV shows. So we're talking about movies like Last Night in Soho or TV shows like Euphoria or 13 Reasons Why, which have this concept of mental illness at their centerpiece, but they are made to be so aesthetically beautiful. If you think about Last Night in Soho, which is a movie starring Matt Smith, you really think about the fact that at the core of it is mental illness, is health, but it is a movie that is lauded for its aesthetic... Sensibility? Yeah, it's a movie that's really lauded for its cinematic depiction. I mean, it is a beautifully made movie and the way that things are shown and the costuming in it Uh. and everything else is just glorious. But at the same time, it is a movie that deals with mental illness. And so you have this glamorized version of just insanity. And I think we do that with a lot of things. Euphoria, all of these kids in Euphoria is a show about, about high schoolers. And they are all, they all have some kind of problem, whether it's depression or anxiety or something like that. But the show itself is, again, very aesthetically pleasing. The costuming and the events that the characters go through are painted in a very beautiful light, painted very aesthetically. And I think that representation is actually quite harmful. That's interesting because there's this actress, her name is Barbie Ferreria. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. I guess she's a euphoria star and she's at this forefront of Gen Z self-acceptance. She's made some kind of comment about surrounding yourself with people you can relate to. Don't do things that make you feel bad about yourself. I think she's even had an Instagram filter where she was showing breakouts on her cheeks in very specific areas because she wanted people to see the real her. And yet we're seeing the show itself feeding back to us this filtered view of mental illness. Right, exactly. It's this diversion between media and reality that women like her are fighting against, that people are fighting against saying basically this is not real. But at the same time, it's so hard when you're young to to 
self-examine or re-examine a piece of media critically. Right. You know, it's you're, when you're 14 or 15 or 16, you're not watching a TV show and going, oh, but I have to examine this in a critical light. You, you probably don't even do that as an adult. You probably consume media without ever looking at it in a critical light. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. You don't have to look at every piece of enjoyment through the lens of criticism because that's exhausting. Yeah. But there does have to be an awareness of the fact that is not reality. And I think, especially again, for younger men and women, it's a hard awareness to come by. Yeah. Mental illness is a real issue for younger people. Absolutely. I think that is again, a product of this worldwide connectedness. Is this social media, this isolation? I think we're always apprised of every current event. I mean, when you are apprised of every single wrong in the world. Is it exhausting? Times, it's exhausting. It is exhausting to constantly be thrown into every time I look at my phone or check the news, there's something bad happening in some place of the world. And it's this exhausting trudge through this current news. You're connected to the whole world all the time and you can't do anything about something that's happening that far away or that's happening on a level where you're not yet. Or when you're a minor in America, you're virtually powerless. You're, yeah, you're helpless. You know, even as an adult, you're helpless to do you are, anything but, about But at the same time, you're even more helpless. When you're an adult, at least your vote matters and your voice matters a little bit more and you can get involved. But when you are a child and you have the whole world at your fingertips, there's always something bad happening. It's exhausting. And everything feels so much bigger. And I think when we represent that in media as something glorified or beautified, it's really harmful because then these people, these young people take that into reality and try to glorify their own mental illness. I have to say, even as an adult, and this is fascinating to me that you brought this up because I cannot look at the news feeds that often because I just feel overwhelmed and I always assumed that that response was a product of my generation, that I just cannot handle that level of exhaustive information inflow. And I'm hearing you say this now, and you're saying that this isn't uncommon among people that you know. No, I think it's a product of, again, the fact that we are receiving so much all the time. I wake up every morning to NPR playing. And sometimes that's very depressing for me. You hear about world disasters and you hear about earthquakes or natural disasters in other places, or you hear about political disasters in other places, or a murder that's taken place or a societal movement that's happening. And when you can't be involved in it and you can't do anything about it, and there are so many things going on that you cannot possibly be involved in them all, it's exhausting to hear about it all and to try to filter it all and to try to take that burden upon yourself as an individual. So what do you think can save you as an individual from that? Where do you find redemption <clears throat> I from think, that kind you know, of thing? The way that I've done it is I have just found one thing to relieve myself. And, and what is that? I donate to UNICEF oh, okay. monthly and it's not much. I don't have a lot of income as a person. So it isn't much. It's maybe five or six dollars a month. But at the same time, it makes me feel like I'm doing at least a little bit of something. I'm at least making a small, significant change, or I'm really trying to pay attention to that one thing. I'm really committing myself to that one thing. And it it makes me feel better every time I get one of those UNICEF newsletters because I get one monthly. It tells me about the impact that my donation has or that UNICEF is making on the world because it does make me feel like I am a bit more involved. I can care about this one thing. I can make some small change in the world, no matter how insignificant it is. It gives me some kind of control. And I think everybody can find that if it's volunteering, if it's donating, if it's simply paying attention or it's writing a petition or it's calling your local government or it's getting involved, whatever it is that kind of relieves that thing. And that's the biggest thing is all of these problems seem so overwhelming, but it really is the small, seemingly insignificant changes that we make that really march humanity forward. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind also. This wasn't really an area that I was going to explore in this interview, but since you touched on it, I wanted to bring it up from a political perspective. 
do you feel at all inclined at this point to become involved and to encourage other people you know to become involved? I hear it oftentimes said that the younger generation isn't interested in politics. And I do think that's true to some extent, but I think that's true because we have so many more massive worldwide problems. And again, I'm looking at this from an American perspective. In America, we are so partisan in our politics that it is almost impossible to get anything done that benefits the people, that benefits humanity. We take every issue to a partisan level. And the most glaring example I can think of is the way that we have handled COVID-19 and the way that we have handled the pandemic as a nation. Because you can really see the partisan separation in things like mask implementation. And for some reason, this has become a political issue. If we should get vaccinated, if we should not get vaccinated, or federal involvement in these ideas versus state involvement in these ideas. And this is not a political issue. This is a human issue. A health policy issue. Yeah, but it is a human issue. And I think this is the thing that disinclines younger generations from wanting to participate in politics because we can't get anything done, at least in America. It's so hard to get anything done, especially when your House and your Supreme Court and your Senate are all in different parties and you all have a different majority and all of your branches are fighting. It's almost impossible to get anything done, especially anything that benefits the world at large. And another thing we do in American politics is we've stopped benefiting future generations. And what I mean by that is all of the issues that are raised today, taxes probably being the best example that I have as an issue that is constantly raised, all focus on today. So all focus on who benefits right now. And we've really stopped focusing on our future generations. And so I think that's why younger people are disinclined. I have to say something to you as an older person. That is one way to look at it. But another way to look at it is that claiming your place in your democracy is your birthright as a citizen of this country. And to abdicate it to politicians or the people with power does not bode well for your future and the future of your generation. At some point, I think we're getting there. People are going to have to make a decision about what they're going to do about this. Well, sure. And, you know, there are people that are millennials, obviously, involved in politics now because the oldest millennials are 35. The oldest millennials could run for president if they so chose. So I think the biggest block is, again, the sense of hopelessness for the future, especially from a worldwide perspective. We think about climate change and the hopelessness that climate change brings because climate change is irreversible. I think a lot of people of my generation think we won't have a future to safeguard. So why bother? It is this detrimental hopelessness of we are not going to have a future the way that things are proceeding. So why would we even bother to try? I do think that is something that a lot of people have. Now, I personally, I believe that everybody has some sort of civic duty. And I believe that your vote is important and your voice is important and getting your opinions out there is important. But I also feel that hopelessness, that if the people who are in power right now don't do something to safeguard our future, we won't have a future to safeguard. And politics is so systematic and it's so generational at this point. The senators serve for life. The Supreme Court serves for yeah. life. It's well, yeah, a political seat is not a, an entitlement. I think our elected officials sometimes forget. Oh, absolutely. They, they're talking to us all the time about social entitlements. Most politicians treat their office as an entitlement program. We have this phrase that I don't even think we should have, which is career politician. Yeah, we Somebody really should not make politics a career. And that should, it should never be a be duty. Case. Yeah, it should be a duty. Do you feel like now I'm not talking about conventional beauty as in beauty and attractiveness or how people look. I'm talking more about experience, the ability to appreciate beauty in the world, whether it's a beautiful song or something you've read or an experience that you're having or a vista that you're looking at. Do you feel that those things are critical to 
your mental health and your functioning as a happy person in society? Oh, absolutely. Without question. Life without beauty would be very sad. I think that would be very gray and monotonous, like an episode of The Twilight Zone. The fact is that beauty is such a vague concept that you can find a form of beauty in almost anything. And so without that, life would be very meaningless, I think, to me. I don't even know that it would be endurable. I wonder if without having the experience of things that we generally lump into the category of beauty or or beautiful. Maybe it's because we don't have another word for it. And yet we all seem to understand what is meant when another person says that in our language. It just makes me wonder if it wouldn't be so Orwellian that we just wouldn't be able to live in it. Well, and here's the more interesting question. Would life even exist if there was no beauty? Because I do believe so many people can find so many different forms of beauty and so many different things that would your job exist if people didn't find beauty? If there was no beauty, would your life exist? Would transportation exist? Would the world as we know it today exist? And so it's really interesting to say, could you live in a world without beauty more than is there a world without beauty? Yeah. Yeah. Does the world keep going if there is nothing beautiful in it? And I don't think that there is. You don't think there is anything beautiful or you don't think it's possible? I don't think it's possible to have any semblance of life without beauty. So it's part of our humanity. I do. I think it is part of our humanity. And this is this kind of turns back to that early anthropological concept of beauty. It may not have always been the same, but there has always been some form of beauty in something. I think it is at the base of our human nature. I think it is written into our genetic code to find beauty in everything that we do and everything that we create. And I don't think that the world would exist without it. Fascinating. Yeah. Thank you very much, Laura. I really appreciate you joining (laughs) us on the podcast with all of your work and all of your school work this week and everything else that you've got going on. And thank you again for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to help support it, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave us a rating and review. To catch all of the latest from This Is Beauty, you can also follow us on Instagram at This Is Beauty Podcast or on Facebook at This Is Beauty Podcast. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.